I'm Kimberly, and I'm excited to share with you guys today. But before we jump in, I want to take a moment to reflect. So think about a time when you made it to the end of the day and you were just spent. How did that feel? What factors contributed to that state of being for you? Turn to your neighbor and discuss for just a moment. I always hate to break this part up. <laughs> but what is standing out for you? What are the factors that have lent towards this state of being spent? What comes up for you guys? Not enough sleep, for sure. That makes our bandwidth a little lower before we get there faster. Lots of decision making, a lot of people. Obligation. Yeah, absolutely. For me, there are kind of two kinds of being spent. The first is not so great. You're wrung out and depleted, frustrated, you're out of energy, and you can either cry or go to bed. So I always choose just go to bed. But then there's the kind of day where your head hits the pillow and you are exhausted, but in a really good way. It's been time well spent and your effort had impact and you're going to sleep smiling. So hold those ideas in your head as we jump in today. Now, fun fact about Vox, we loosely follow the lectionary, which is a pre-selected collection of scripture that rotates in a three-year cycle. And it's often the starting point for our homilies. So when we choose a passage like the one Tiffany just read for us, we're reading and thinking about that together with churches all around the globe. And this week, we had a number of options, and one of them was this passage. And in part of it, it says, I am already being poured out as a libation. Now, in a lot of translations, this verse says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. So when I read it in Vox's preferred translation, I thought it had a fairly different feeling. When I think of the word libation, my mind goes straight to fancy menus and um, hipster bars. But when I looked it up in the dictionary, do you know what it actually means? It means a drink poured out as an offering to a deity. Mostly I'm sharing this with you so that next time you see libations offered somewhere, you too can smirk and wonder what we're offering this up to exactly. Anyway, as soon as I read this passage, I have a very specific, very visceral memory. And so I would like to kick us off with a little Kimberly and Coach story time, if that's okay. <laughs> ben and I met in college, and even though he was a student, <laughs> he's already laughing, even though he was a student, he was also running the largest ministry on campus. And he was a student aide, which meant that for three years, every incoming freshman met him during orientation. Now, Bradley University was far from a Christian school. In fact, it was somewhat hostile about issues of faith. And so Ben basically became the de facto pastor for our university. And having met him during my orientation, I decided to check out this ministry he ran, which was called, in all of its 90s glory, Shock, which stood for Students High on Christ. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Now, my survival mechanism for new groups of people is observation. When I walk into a room, especially if I'm new there, I'm paying close attention to the web of relationships, and I'm figuring out the social norms and the permissions in that room. 
So as I come into shock, I'm hanging out and watching, and I start noticing some interesting dynamics. First and foremost, I see that Ben is always on call. There was this feeling in the group that everyone needs someone, except for Ben, because he had God. <laughs> Most nights, a lot of us hung out in this lounge on the 10th floor of Geysert Hall, and this lounge was in the center of the floor. The rooms were all around the perimeter, and Ben's dorm room was conveniently located right across from the doorway to the lounge. So that's where we would hang, and it was essentially one half party, one half waiting room. Someone would come out of Ben's dorm room, and someone else would pop up and go in. While we were chilling out and doing homework, Ben was counseling and listening and praying until late into the night, which may give some context for his favorite college slogan, D is for diploma. So I watched this for a couple of months, Ben taking care of everyone almost every night until two or three in the morning, and I start asking God, who takes care of Ben? And that was probably the beginning of the end for me. <laughs> because four years later, we got married and we just celebrated 21 years. <laughs> But long before I realized that I might really like this guy, uh, we began to partner in mission. In my second semester at Bradley, I apprenticed to teach with Shock's teachers, and in my sophomore year, I took co-leadership of the organization. Ben had graduated, but he was still very involved, and it was on a particularly rough night that Ben quoted this verse to me. I asked him, are you okay? And he said, I am being poured out like a drink offering, and then ambled out of the room. <laughs> You see, when Ben was mentored into ministry, this verse was a teaching point. You will be poured out until you are empty, and then you will die, but those rewards in heaven, man. <laughs> so 25 years later, when I read this verse, I can still picture Ben in his living room, a shell of the person that I thought I knew. And perhaps this was the first flag that there had, been, there had to be a better way, uh, but I didn't see it then. And as I prepped for this homily, we talked about that night and the conversations that followed, and I asked if he would be okay with me sharing this story, and he said, do it. I was taught a bad model, and I shared that bad model. But honestly, we were doing the best that we could with the tools that we had. Ben did ministry that way until he was sick and burnt out and wounded. And then rather than taking that as a cautionary tale, I took it on like a mantle. And to be honest, it fit pretty well. From a very early age, I took on the role of fixer in my family. I was the one who tried to make everything okay, even when it wasn't, especially when it wasn't. So when I found out that the model for Christian leadership was to be poured out like a drink offering, that sounded true. That sounded beautiful, even. Having grown up inside of a codependent dynamic, I was a bit unmoored in college, so far away from the family drama. Honestly, I had all of this rescuer energy, and it either needed to be examined or it needed a home. And it would be more than a decade until I really examined it, so... Of course, I found the best outlet for it, and that outlet was ministry. My friend Charmaine said I collected stray people the way some people collect stray dogs. 
Now, some of you are nodding because you've lived this story. But if you're new to the concept of codependency, let's pause real quick just so that you know what I mean by that. Codependency refers to an imbalanced relational pattern where one person enables another person's addiction, poor mental health, immaturity, irresponsibility, or underachievement. And in exchange, the rescuer in the relationship often experiences belonging and identity related to being the responsible one, the martyr, the giver. In this kind of imbalance, the receiver is dependent on the giver for care for them, to make choices for them, to help mitigate consequences of destructive behaviors. But the giver is also dependent on the receiver because this pattern helps them feel needed and important. Now, you may or may not see these imbalanced patterns in your personal relationships, but I want to bring up today how this shows up in how our culture often does church. In many churches, we have sainted codependency. In fact, I think we often exploit the codependent. Did you grow up feeling responsible for your entire family's well-being? Have we got the job for you? Doesn't pay much, or maybe even at all, but kingdom dividends, baby. You're going to fit right in. Have you guys been taught the JOY acronym? It goes, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Yeah. You can think about taking care of yourself when and if every other person is okay. Now, in this verse, Paul is telling his friend about how this season feels to him, but turning it into a directive for always is dangerous. This interpretation robs us both, the rescuer and the rescued, of being fully human. Instead, we become caricatures, the needy and the needed, the has-it-all-together and the screw-up, the holy and the sinner, In this scenario, we must be either one or the other, when in reality, we all move back and forth along these polarities. Now, you may be thinking, well, Jesus was holy, and he didn't move back and forth, and aren't we supposed to be like Christ? And I will respond to you, yes, Jesus was holy. But we do not see this pattern playing out in his story. In fact, people were often mad at him for what he wasn't doing, In one story, his disciples come to him and they're saying, where have you been? Everybody is looking for you. Everybody is mad. But he had stolen away to pray and recalibrate, and he was not sorry. He knows what is his work and what isn't, and he often expects people to participate in their own journey towards healing. We see this when he asked the blind man to go wash in the pool, for example. And when the rich young ruler walks away, he doesn't chase him. He doesn't try to do his work for him. He doesn't lament that he has failed because this follower made the wrong choice. And we see him repeatedly allow himself to be cared for, sometimes in ways that other people find too extravagant. We see him ask for what he needs at Gethsemane, for example, and be real about his fear and pain. Even Jesus, our literal savior, cultivated mutuality in his relationships. So as we navigate these patterns of imbalance, there's a passage that I find extremely helpful, and it's in Galatians. And it says, bear one another's burdens and so so fulfill the law of Christ. 
And 20-year-old Kimberly was like, yes. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not another, for each one shall bear his own load. This passage is a bit confusing. He starts off saying that we should bear one another's burdens, and then three verses later, he's saying that each one shall bear his own load. If you find this a bit perplexing, you're not alone. In English, burden and load are synonyms, but in the Greek, there's some nuance here. A burden is something that is too much to carry on your own, to carry it while you will need help, whereas a load is something far more manageable. So once we understand the nuance in this passage, it can serve as a sort of guidepost. When I'm asking for help, is this something I can do on my own? Something that will be part of my growth if I let it? Or on the flip side, if I am resistant to help, <laughs> when in re am I resistant to help when in reality I can't carry this on my own and still be well? And if I'm offering help, is this something they really need or even want from me? <laughs> and if I take control, am I helping them with something that is too heavy to manage on their own? Or am I standing in the way of their learning and growing? There are a lot of places where this principle shows up, sometimes in literal workload, like household tasks or the work involved in your team's big project. Often, though, this principle shows up in more emotional or relational ways. Have you ever had a friend who is a bit of an energy vampire? <laughs> Maybe they call on their way home from work, unload their frustrations on you, and then hang up. If they asked how you are, it was a mere formality because they were not listening anyway. <laughs> A younger version of me might have said in this scenario that a good Christian will listen anyway, that loving in this situation looks like being a receptacle for all the angst and rage every day. But the version of me that's done some work and engaged a therapist would be able to recognize I don't need to carry that load every day. It doesn't set my evening up well, and actually, it's probably not helping them either. Now let's take a little sidebar here. As we look at this together, I am not saying in any way that it is bad to receive care. In fact, the opposite is true. We all need to both give and receive care. And there are realities in which an individual will need a lot of care. A difficult diagnosis, trauma and grief, injustice and impressive systems, diminished access to resources. It is not codependency to need care. It might be codependency, though, that tells someone who needs consistent care that they have nothing to offer in their relationships. To paint any individual as a recipient, as only the recipient of care, flattens them. We miss out on all of their many dimensions. So with that being said, let's take a moment to pause and reflect. When have you been tempted to carry other people's loads and when have you been tempted to let others carry your load? For me, it's every time I forget my water bottle downstairs, I'm already in bed. <laughs> okay, let's jump back in. Though Paul's words have been used as a sort of bat signal for codependency, I think we can take a closer look and see that he is saying something very different here. 
First of all, Paul was a Pharisee before his encounter with Christ, and he would have been very familiar with the sacrificial system. First, they offered the lamb, sometimes grain and oil, and finally, the drink offering, where wine was poured over the sacrifice. And what often comes next in these texts is the discussion of a pleasing aroma that follows. So this drink offering does two things. It signals the end of the ritual, and it's pleasing. What if he's naming here that he has presented his life as a living sacrifice and that he believes it is coming to an end? But his efforts have been well spent. The aroma of his life is pleasing. If we zoom out in this letter to Timothy, Paul's spiritual son, we see Paul expressing gratitude for how people have cared for him and some frustration where they have not. <laughs> we see him asking Timothy for exactly what he needs. What we see between Paul and Timothy is not codependency. It's mutuality. It's interdependency. And as we zoom out further, we see interdependency all over the New Testament. This Jesus movement is something we are doing together. We do not simply enter as messy and needy and then graduate to perfect caregiver. Throughout our lives, we will slide back and forth between these realities. Here's a couple of my favorite passages that really bring this home. The first is from Romans. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Sounds good, right? We should do that here. We do do that here, let's be honest. This church is great. So then, and then in uh, Ephesians, so then putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another, which is my favorite verse. These verses remind and empower me, they give me permission to prioritize relationships in my life that practice reciprocity. For me to offer my life as part of this Jesus movement that we call church, I need mutuality. I need to know who I can be real with and have those words and realities be held with compassion and tenderness. I need to know that we will take turns being the messy one. And when it is my turn, it will be okay. And I know now that this is often the critical piece in how my head hits the pillow on the days when I feel poured out. This morning, some of us are trending towards not needing anything, and we are hyper-aware of what everyone else needs. And if so, our work is to be honest about our needs. And for some of us, we're in the opposite kind of season, and our work right now is to ask God to show us how we can contribute and volley our relational energy back toward our community. Again, it may be that in a particularly hard season, I have to accept that I don't really have much to give, and that's okay. But know that eventually this season will end, and bandwidth for reciprocity will ebb and flow. So for those of us who are walking through life with some capacity, let's turn our attention to how we are showing up in relationships. Where can we take a turn to listen, to gift, to serve, to celebrate. Which brings us to our second reflection question. Can you make space this week to practice interdependence? To do so, will you lean toward offering care or asking for care? 
Take a moment to just self-observe. Where are you in your journey right now? What will you do this week? Now, as we think more about how we church together, it's worth noting that for many of us, the picture of church that we've inherited lends itself towards receiving and consuming care. One of my mentors often says the medium is the message, meaning that the way we do something tells us something. When we walk into a room and the chairs are in rows, that tells us something. We know what we've signed up for. And of course, when we walk into a room and the chairs are in a big circle, we know something else, right? Like if we're introverted, we know we might want to bolt right out of there. <laughs> I'm not, so I'm like, yes, <laughs> sit down next to me. Most people here in the States define church as a place that they attend, a once a week event that they come and watch. We just pull up to the tap and take our fill and leave. Someone in my family once told me, I go to church and I tithe, and in return, God should leave me alone on Monday. <laughs> there are professionals who do the God stuff. This person was not thrilled when I became one of those professionals. <laughs> when we attend church this way, leaving the spiritual work to the professionals, we become spectators in our own work, and our spiritual muscles run the risk of atrophy. A couple of weeks ago, Jenna mentioned that it often seems like there's only two options, to consume church or to be consumed. And let me just tell you, I felt that in my bones. <laughs> she did offer a third way, though, to covenant together. But it is so much easier to consume than to covenant. In spite of the rows that we are sitting in, this thing we do together each Sunday is not a show. We start each of our services with a greeting that tells us that liturgy is the work of the people. And on any given Sunday, you'll see a rotation of volunteers, prayer readers, communion servers, coffee brewers, the rock star team in the sound booth. <laughs> when we see people up here reading and serving and sharing, it tells us something about Vox. It tells us that we are in this together. And for the record, not only is Sunday morning not a show, it's not even the point. When the body of Christ is fully functional, weekly service is never the end goal. It's the launch pad. <laughs> On Sundays, we gather together to stay connected and be encouraged and be equipped. And then we take this goodness we experience together into our lives and we live the church, which means that each of us has to be open to the Holy Spirit's leading. What has God done in my story that will equip and contribute to my community? Now I wanna to step to the side here and name something about leadership in church spaces. I have spent my whole adult life in one ministry or another. I've been on staff at churches and at organizations that coach and equip pastors. I've been part of mega churches, church plants, house churches. Vox is my first liturgical church since my Catholic childhood. I've continued to serve with parachurch ministries that support churches and church plants over the last seven years that I've been at Vox. But like many of you, I came through these doors a bit broken. 
And I sat in the back for years, just healing up, being a part of church, watching and relearning, not being in charge of anything, practicing reciprocity. All of that to say that when I tell you this, please know that it comes from a place of personal experience and being in conversation with hundreds of pastors over many, many years. It is very hard for a pastor to experience reciprocity and mutuality that we all need from our church community. It is treacherous trying to avoid the traps of perfectionism and high expectations. It is a gauntlet that requires vigilant self-awareness and intentionality for a leader to show up in their community as a full person. As a person who might be struggling or doubting or working through a trauma that they are just now naming. As a person who maybe just made a big mistake as a person who might be dying under the weight of a burden that they can't carry alone. And when I think of our pastors here, I want something better for them. I long for them to feel safe enough to be more than the caricature of a holy leader. I want them to experience mutuality here. Now, they have to do their own work to be ready and available for that. But what we can do as a church is be a church where even the leaders get to be human. We can be a community where we check in with our leaders and really listen to how they're doing rather than treating them like a pastoral care hotline. We can be a church where we don't expect them to do most of the work alone because they're the ones that get paid. And we can lift them up in prayer and concern ourselves with the state of their soul just as they do with ours. I want this for them. And I want it for all of us. And I want it for you. Ben and I still do ministry together, but it looks a little bit different these days. Sometimes it's in churches, but sometimes it's in how we neighbor or how we run our business. We just aim to be a force for good and to live the church with our lives. We've done some work now, and we know that self-care and boundaries aren't sacrilegious. But there are many times where we feel poured out, to be sure. We are two Enneagram sevens in one marriage. <laughs> we have a tendency to go a little too hard. But we are surrounded by a community that sees us as whole people. People who call on us, who call us on our crap and still care for us so well. This is something that we can cultivate. Now, we've spent the last six weeks talking about the Vox value of participation. And certainly that does play into any community that is founded on interdependence and reciprocity. People have to do stuff. <laughs> but as we close today, I'd like to take a peek at another of Vox's values, which is posture. I think it can guide us into the kind of community where everyone is allowed to be fully themselves. It says, God gives grace to the humble, 
And a posture of humility emerges as we receive grace in community. Jesus, though equal with God, emptied himself of power and made himself human. We are called to a deep acceptance of this messy humanity, both ours and others, just as Jesus practiced. We have God's DNA, yet live within our shadow, ashamed to live the fullness of God's vision for our lives. I lost part of mine. Humility is choosing to see ourselves and others more accurately, both our light and our darkness. Each person has profound intrinsic worth and carries God's spark. We will work to consider others in addition to ourselves, recognizing that caring only for ourselves is just as damaging as neglecting ourselves, which leads to another form of self-centered living. When we look at our community with this lens, when we hold this posture, the way we participate moves way beyond mere activity and church events. When we practice deep acceptance of messy humanity, we can show up fully. In the body, the heart pumps both in and out. So in the body of Christ, the church, we can do the same. We can practice this together. You are more than invited to participate here. You are vital, and we are members of one another. Lord, may we carry this posture of humility into our daily lives. May humility not choke us with shame, but instead hold us up and create space for our journey. Whether we find ourselves inside moments of celebration or lament, weave the fabric of our community so that we can truly see each other through the law of love. Amen.